0: Um, at the moment, apparently, as a church, I've not been here for a couple of weeks, but we're working through a series called Tales of the Unexpected. And um, basically, we're working through the parables of Jesus. And I've never really had such an apt title to a sermon, I don't think, or sermon series title to a sermon that I've preached, uh, because the parable that I've chosen today, the parable of the mustard seed, has really struck me as being a tale of the unexpected. And so we're going to be looking at that today. We're going to be looking at it from uh, Mark's Gospel, it's Mark chapter 4, if you'd like to look it up. I was speaking to a friend of mine just the other day, and we were talking about this lady that we both know, and she suffers from uh, Alzheimer's. And we were just admiring how well she was doing at looking after her mother, and we were just... Well, her mother suffers from Alzheimer's, and so we are admiring how well she was doing at looking after her mother, and just really, just thinking, that must be so tough. And my friend actually said that. She said, it must be so tough to look after a relative who's who's suffering that much and doesn't really know what's going on. And just knowing that he still lived with his father, I asked him how his father was doing. And he said to me, my father's mustard. And I think it's a Northern Irish saying or, or something like that. I didn't quite get it, but I had heard it before. And I've usually heard it in terms of, like, a rugby match or something like that, and Ronan Ogara misses another penalty, and everyone goes, Oh, he's mustard. And so it's that whole idea of being a bit useless, I think, or not playing well or or not doing very well at the time. So that really stood out for me at the time, because I was looking at this parable of the mustard seed and going, You know, oh, he's mustard. We should actually be wanting to be called mustard as Christians. You know, That should be what, something that we had... Because you know, we're told that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. So I was thinking about that and going, well, actually, the Christian life should be mustard. And so that's what I've entitled my, my sermon tonight. Um, so the parable of the mustard seed is found in uh, three of the Gospels it's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But we're going to be looking at Mark's version. I've put the other two up there so you can compare them if you want to. They're very similar in many ways. Um, Matthew and Luke just include the word tree instead of greatest plant in the garden. And again he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable will we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed that you plant in the ground. Yet when planted it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. And with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them, as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. Have you ever read like a parable like this and gone, actually, what's so difficult about that? That's quite simple. Um, why, why does it say at the end of verse 34 there, why does it say, Jesus, at the end of the parables and stuff, he would take his disciples aside and explain everything to them. Surely that doesn't need explaining. Um, And I don't know if this is because of our great education system or whether it's because we've all been through Sunday school and we've seen the parable of the mustard seed taught so many times, and we think, that's simple. Um, I know for myself it was a bit like that until a few wee things came to change my mind a wee bit on it. I'd always skimmed over this passage. I thought... There's not a lot to it, a very short passage. Um, And it's obviously about the growth of God's kingdom. You've got a small seed growing into a massive tree. Brilliant. You know, God's kingdom is going to start small, but it's going to end up big and glorious and massive. And uh, it's the kind of picture that you get at Sunday school there with a tiny tiny seed into a massive tree. And you get the impression that um, that's what God's kingdom is going to be. It's going to be this massive tree, and it's going to be popular. It's going to be something that the birds of the air are going to nest in the shade of. They're going to come and they're going to flock to it. And I think a lot of churches try and operate that way. They try and become big and massive like big trees to get the birds of the air to flock to it. Um, and that's what I thought it was about. I kind of was like, oh, that's good. It's a nice passage. Or it's about the growth in our faith. So we start off with the small faith when we become Christians, and eventually it flourishes into this massive tree. But there... I started to come across, as I started to look into the passage, a few small things that changed my mind on it a little bit. And I know it's not conventional, but I'm going to have a look at it. I mean, I'm sure you can imagine how shocked I would have been to find out that mustard trees are not that big after all. I looked on the internet to find statistics for how big they grow, and apparently, uh, according to the one site I found, uh, mustard trees grow to about 30 to 100 centimetres high. So about a metre high is is a big one. Um, So not really an impressive kingdom if that's what you're going to use to describe your kingdom Um, but I thought oh, maybe that's like mustard seeds in Europe or something, mustard trees in Europe, maybe in Jerusalem there were massive trees so I I thought I'd have a look at uh, the Jews and mustard and thought I'd look at that on the internet and I actually found out according to one site that um, there was actually illegal to plant mustard in the gardens of Jerusalem at the time Um, and I thought, what? What's that all about? Jesus is giving this parable of a mustard seed um, and it's illegal to plant it because it's considered a weed and it's going to take over the garden and you've got, and it's not even a big tree, what's he talking about? So I was a bit confused. I mean, the Jews would have been used to hearing great kingdoms described as trees. Um, In Daniel we have a description of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and um, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and Daniel chapter 4, it says this. uh, These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked and there before me stood a great tree. And in in the middle of the land, its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. Now if I was Jesus and I was describing the kingdom of God, that's the tree I would have chosen. I would have gone you know that one in Daniel chapter four, that's what the kingdom of God is like. It's um, going to be this massive tree that everyone can see and that all the birds of the air and the animals of the field can be fed from. But Jesus didn't do this. Ezekiel describes God saying this he says, This is what the sovereign Lord says I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar. I will plant it, and I will break off a tender sprig from the topmost shoot and plant them on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant them. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in its shade, and they will find shelter in the shade of its branches. And there's a picture of a cedar tree there, Um, and you've got some people standing next to it for scale. And you can just see that it's a lot bigger than a meter high. So why didn't, you know, God had used, um, in Ezekiel, God had used a cedar tree to describe his kingdom. Why didn't Jesus use a cedar tree? It's still a small seed to a massive tree. It would have been far more impressive and the Jews would have understood it. They would have gone along with it and it would have been great. But he didn't. I think the Jews would have been shocked, maybe even insulted, that Jesus chose a mustard seed to describe his kingdom. After all, this wasn't a great tree. This was a weed that they didn't want in their gardens. Here's a description of mustard from uh, the internet. Uh, it's a guy called Ronnie Deber, and uh, it's an internet site, Garden Guides. And it says, Wild mustard is an aggressive annual weed. It is ingenious to Europe, Asia, and North Africa, and has now become common in northern parts of America, namely Canada. It can be found in cultivated fields, gardens, pasture lands, river banks, roadsides, and waste places. It creates a serious problem in the potential yield and seed quality of harvested crops. Wild mustard weeds are responsible for a large percentage of crop losses because they overpower the crops and destroy them. They can become fatal to cattle when mixed with the pasture greens and digested in large quantities. It's interesting to note where um, these passages come. In Matthew, the passage about the mustard seed actually comes in the middle of the passage of the wheat and the tares. So Jesus tells the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the wheat and the tares. Then he tells the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And then he explains the parable of the wheat and the tares. I, I just think it's interesting to note. I'm not I'll do a David and say I'm not going to go there because I don't really know where I'm going with that. But I just think it's interesting, it maybe something to think about. And um, in Mark, uh, it comes in the, same, in the same chapter as the parable of the sower, where you have the, the seed that's sown among the weeds, uh, which is choked out. So you've got these pictures there already with the parables that he's telling. So if it's not just about this small seed becoming a great tree, what is this passage really about? Mark chapter 4, verse 30. And again he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable will we use to describe it? So the first thing we can know for sure is that this parable is about the kingdom of God. He's trying to describe the kingdom of God with this parable which is quite common for him. He quite often tells parables to describe the kingdom of God. Um, And it is interesting to note at this point that when Jesus preached the gospel, he didn't preach a gospel of salvation generally, but he preached a gospel of the kingdom. Um, Though Jesus did talk in terms of redemption, coming for the least, the last, and the last, um, he talked about salvation occasionally. Mostly, he talked about the kingdom of God. The word salvation only appears six times in the Gospels, in all of the Gospels. Whereas the words the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven appear 83 times. And here's just a few examples to remind you of what he says. All taken from Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew chapter 5. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Matthew chapter 12. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And he says, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we should be seeking as Christians for God's kingdom to come. And the gospel that Jesus said was to be preached throughout the whole world was a gospel of the kingdom. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So where am I going with this? What's the point? Um, Why did Jesus teach the kingdom of God rather than just a gospel of salvation or or the gospel of salvation? I think when we preach the gospel of salvation, we're right, Jesus is our saviour, but it leads to people having a faith which is based on one day, the day of their salvation, the day when they got saved. But when we preach the kingdom of God, Jesus, or God, becomes our ruler, our king. And then we end up with an ongoing situation of of Jesus who continues to rule over us day after day. So we have not just a savior, but we have a king as well. And we receive our salvation, but we receive so much more. We receive a king who is good and loving and just and powerful and righteous, um, who knows what's best for us and is prepared to put into action things that will help us to go there. So... That's why I think Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. So when Jesus preaches about the kingdom of God here in this parable, when he talks about this parable of the kingdom of God, what he's really doing is saying, he's explaining to us what life will be like in God's kingdom. What is life going to be like in God's kingdom when we put ourselves under God's rule? Verse 31 tells us what it will be like. It's going to be like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed that you plant in the ground. Now, I've already said how shocked I think people would have been to have heard of the kingdom of God being described as a mustard seed. Um, But Jesus wasn't the first great leader in the world to use a mustard seed to describe his kingdom or his power or his might. Actually, Alexander the Great, 344 years beforehand, um, used a mustard seed to describe his army. Um, What happened was... um, Alexander the Great became king at quite a young age. He was 19 years old, um, king of Macedonia. Uh, Daniela's not here, but uh, she's from that area. So he became king of Macedonia at um, 19 years old. That's not very old at all. And he starts immediately to try and exert his authority to conquer the nations around him. And it doesn't take long before he enters into the Persian Empire, which is the great empire at the time. It's the one that defeated the Babylonians. And so... um, there he is. He starts to conquer this Persian empire, and we've got this great king Darius, who's the king of the Persians, and he's not impressed. He's like, you know, what's this little young guy coming doing? Coming into my country from this small country? What does he think? Who does he think he is? So Darius thoughts, thinks, well, what I'll do is I'll just scare him off, and he'll go away. So he writes him a letter and says, you know, um, basically, I'm a god, um, the great king Darius, you know go away, you're weak, you're you're useless. And with the letter, he sends a bag of sesame seeds and says, you know, if you can count the number of seeds in this bag, then you can count the number of my army. And this is supposed to intimidate uh, Alexander the Great to run away. But that doesn't happen. Let me read to you an extract from the history of Alexander. Then the ambassadors of Darius took this letter together with the sesame seeds and carried it to Alexander. And as soon as he read the letter of Darius, he again filled his hand with sesame seeds. He put them into his mouth and said, they are many but tasteless. At that time, a report reached reached Alexander that Olympias, his mother, was seized with a great and sore sickness. Then he wrote a letter to Darius as follows, from Alexander to Darius the king. Thou writest many new and artful words to me. And thou thinkest in thy pride that thou wilt glorify thyself by thy words, which is more than right and beyond thy capacity. This is a sign of inferiority, and thy shame and disgrace will increase and become more in the world than all the other kings your equal. Neither imagine this, that I now return because of the words of your letter which you have sent me. but the sickness of my mother Olympias compels me to return to Macedonia. But I will make ready and come again against you. So I retire from your country in good order and great strength and might, like the blossoms of a tree in glorious bloom. And I will become firm in your land, like a vine branch which is cut off from a tree and planted in another spot. And as for these sesame seeds which you have sent me, to inform me of the number of your army, I send you a little mustard seed, that you may know that a little mustard is more pungent than a great deal of sesame. Then Alexander wrote this Later he gave it to, with the mustard to the ambassadors and sent them away. What happens is when he's on his way home, um, he, he finds that Darius's army is, is nearby. So he goes and he fights Darius' army and they have this huge battle and there's quite a description about it and it says that even the sun was sad and it was hidden by clouds and it's quite an interesting bit to read, but it's quite long. Um, but what happens is eventually Alexander defeats Darius's general and sends him back home again. And so he arrives back to Darius at about the same time as the letter arrives to Darius. So it says this, Before Darius took in his hand the letter which Alexander had sent, he questioned the ambassador, saying, What did Alexander do with the sesame seed that I sent him? The ambassador said to him, He took a handful of it, he put it in his mouth, and when he had eaten it, he said, They are many, but tasteless. Then Darius took a handful of mustard seed put it in his mouth and when he had eaten it he said they are small but very pungent. Then Eumenes the general heard the speech he said to him thou hast spoken rightly my lord the king for though the army of Alexander is small yet it is fierce and warlike for like four of my army they have slain a multitude both horse and foot. So in the same way that Alexander the Great uses this description of a mustard seed to try and, well, this mustard seed to represent his army and saying that they're small, they're pungent, that they're fiery, Um, Jesus uses the mustard seed to tell uh, tell the people at the time what his kingdom will be like. And I believe that Jesus is describing a kingdom. in which God chooses the weak to confound the strong. He's not showing a big and glorious tree of a kingdom, but he's saying, you know, this is like a mustard seed that grows into a bush. It's like a weed. Um, It's not glorious or big, but it's, you know, this is God's kingdom and this is the way in which God chooses to operate on this earth. Um, He uses the small and the unexpected to defeat the large and the powerful. And we have examples of this in the Bible. We've got David and Goliath, where um, he uses David, the youngest son, Uh, of Jesse, to go and defeat the the largest um, and most fierce fighter in the Philistine army. And not only does he go out there, he doesn't go out there with armor and with swords and with all of that, but he uses a sling. So God operates in this way. He uses the weak to confound the strong. Um, We also have the example of Daniel, who was a captive, um, taken from, from Jerusalem to Babylon, and yet he uses this young boy to be able to communicate with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, even though he's fl- thrown into lion's den and all of these things, um, it's not through his own power, but through God's power. So he uses the weak to confound the strong. Again, he uses Joseph in a similar way. A slave uh, who ends up being somebody who can communicate with Pharaoh, uh, the greatest king in the world at that point. And we also see just in, in Jesus' own life, Um, that God doesn't choose to come as strong or or mighty, but he comes as a servant rather than as an earthly king. And I think that this is the description of God's kingdom that Jesus is trying to get across, that, that God uses the weak to confound the strong. You don't need to be big and mighty, but God uses the small and the insignificant. But I think that there are other things that we can learn if we look at the description of mustard, if we look at what mustard is actually like, about what the kingdom of God could be like. Um, in the continuation of the, the bit that I go off the internet, describing mustard, it says this, that it is also a popular host to many pests, insects, fungi, and viruses that cause severe damage to cultivated crops. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, how God's kingdom may be a host to many pests and viruses, the unwanted in society. Wild mustard ranges in height from 30 to 100 centimeters, can have either single or multi branch stems, which are greenish purple, bright yellow flowers about 1.5 centimeters wide, which grow in clusters at the end of each branch, elongating as the seed pod develops. Each plant produces about 10 to 18 seeds per pod, and about 2,000 to 3,500 seeds per plant. Now that's quite fruitful. And I think the kingdom of God is something that's meant to be fruitful. And we get that from the parable uh, of the sower as well, where it talks about the seed that the land is on good, good ground produces fruit 30, 60, or even 100 times. Now imagine this, even 2,000 to 3,500 times. Um, the seeds are just distributed when the intended crops are harvested, and the seeds are strewn in the ground uh, and spread to other fields by harvesting machinery. Seeds can remain viable in the soil for up to 60 years because they are buried deep in the ground and can be cultivated and come forward and germinate at any time. And doesn't this just show the resilience of the kingdom of God? Quite often we've seen in history how the church seems to be dying away or or people think it's going to die and yet it seems to be able to come back and germinate over and over again. Wild mustard can grow well in almost any soil. It prefers full sunlight, though it grows well in partial shade. And just thinking about the soil of people's hearts, it can grow well in almost any soil. We have people from all walks of life coming um, to know the kingdom of God or coming into the kingdom of God. And as for the full sunlight and the partial sage, there's a theme of light um, throughout the Bible. So we have... Lots of things that we could learn if we wanted to take, if we wanted to look at mustard and say, well, this is, if, this, if the kingdom of God is like a mustard plant and this is what a mustard plant is like, perhaps the kingdom of God is like these things. And I think all of those things there uh, can be backed up in scripture, um, like I've said. So while mustard never grows massive or takes over from a position of strength, it is virile, it does grow, it does spread, and it does take over and um, it continues to grow and spread. And for me, this reminds me of the early church. It didn't become massive and take over from a position of strength, but it was little pockets here and there, and it just spread throughout the whole world really rapidly, a bit like a weed. And we have the example of the Chinese church even today. Um, in the Times, uh, May the 2nd, 2009, they had an article called God is Back, and it was How Ned Flanders Won the Evangelical Crusade. Um, for those of you who, who watch The Simpsons, Ned Flanders is uh, the resident Christian on The Simpsons, and he's often taken the mickey of. And what they're saying in this article is though, although we may take the mickey of Christians and stuff, it's actually a growing thing in the world. And they, they call this, this growth of religion or growth of Christianity Flanderism, just because of Ned Flanders. He says, the most remarkable example of Flanderism, uh, growth of Christianity, can be found in Chinese house churches. We recently visited an apartment in a well-heeled district of Shanghai. I think that's a busy district. Where a technology executive hosted two dozen clever young Chinese, including several CEOs, a well-known academic, a stem cell researcher, and they spent three hours studying one letter from St. Paul. Soon their church will be too big. It will cross the 25-person limit for unauthorized meetings. Or one of the neighbors will complain about the hymns or people hogging the car parking spaces. So the church will have to split, guaranteeing its growth. China is well on the way to being the world's biggest Christian country. There are at least 80 million Christians already, and already more people go to church every week than there are members of the Communist Party. It's amazing. But why are we shocked when we see the church growing in some circumstances? This is what Jesus said the kingdom of God was like. It's like a mustard seed. It spreads in small amounts all over the place. But I did come across a problem, and I'm sure that you've got this question in your mind already, um, in the next verse, verse 32. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air nest in its shade. And this one stumped me for a while. I was like, okay, that was all going really well. I had this sermon all worked out, and now it's talking about it being massive. What's it it saying? And uh, Matthew and Luke actually describe it not as the largest garden plant, but as a tree. And I was thinking, what is this all about? And I tried, I thought maybe the Greek means, for largest means most as well. And I looked it up, and one of the, the last one in the list of the Greek thing was most, but... I kind of thought, well, if it's the last one, it's probably the least likely that they would choose, so um, I have to take that the guys who interpreted or or translated know their stuff better than I do, and I'll take it as the largest. One of the theories I heard on the birds that flocked to the tree was that they would have been small birds because it was a small bush. They would have landed in the branches. They would have been eating the grain from the crops, and they would have been seen as a pest as well. So getting the whole idea of a pest... Uh, back into the kingdom, but we've already been there. But for me, I guess the way I look at this, and I, I'm not saying you have to look at it the same way as me, but the way I look at this is if it's describing this as becoming the, the largest or the greatest of all the garden plants or a tree, um, and that's not what it usually does, for me it's speaking of God's power to full for growth beyond what you would naturally expect, um, beyond human capability. Um, the kingdom of God will grow beyond what we can do through our own efforts. And, th- and that's how I take that. Um, the Times article I referred to earlier referred to the fact that throughout history, many people have said that Christianity is going to die, that there's going to be death to Christianity. Um, and yet it still seems to grow beyond what we naturally expect. It said that the founders of modern sociology, Max Weber and Emile Durkin, predicted the secularization of the world. Friedrich Nietzsche, I'm not sure that's how you pronounce his name, loudly announced God's death. Marx cursed religion as the opium of the people. Freud saw religion as mere neurosis. And ever since Darwin educated European th- thought has viewed religion as a dying cult, the refuge of the ignorant and the superstitious. But The article goes on to say that instead of dying out, Christianity is growing in places where we least expect it. It was saying that in the Ivy League universities in America, the height of academia, the Christian unions are growing beyond what they have before. In 1900, 80% 80 of the world's Christians lived in Europe. And yet today, 60% of them, sorry, Europe and the United States, but today 60% of them live in the developing world. States that were once committed to enforcing secularization are now facing religious revivals. And apparently in Russia, 86% of the population identify themselves as Christian. But that says the most remarkable example, again, of Christian growth is found in Chinese house churches. So no wonder Mark goes on to say um, that Jesus had to explain everything to them afterwards because it wasn't that simple after all. Not for me anyway. And it is a very different rendering of the parable of the mustard seed than I've ever heard. Um, I've, I've seen it now in, in a few different articles but um, and maybe it's different from what you've heard and I don't know. For me, it stands out and it makes sense, but I just pray that it does for you um, and that you learn something from that. Uh, but in conclusion, parables are not simple. Parables aren't as obvious as we expect them to be always. Um, quite often, we take them as nice little stories um, that we like to hear, they've got a nice moral meaning, um, and we think great parables. You know they're, but they 're quite simple they 're kind of childish stories. You usually teach them at Sunday school, but um, it 's amazing how shocking and how thought provoking they would have been at the time i 'm sure the Jews were standing there confused going what 's he talking about? The kingdom of God 's like a mustard seed a you know, mustard tree that 's not big. and you know, how's that glorious?" But I think that this relates to the fact that the kingdom of God isn 't always what we expect. What's not what they expected at the time anyway. They were expecting the kingdom of God to come. They were expecting the Messiah to come, but they weren't expecting him to come as a servant. They were expecting him to come as an earthly king who was going to save them from the Romans, who was going to save them from their oppressors. And sometimes maybe we need to look at the way in which what what do we expect from the kingdom of God? Do we expect it to come in power and might, or do we expect God to work through the small and the insignificant? So that's what we can take away from today. Part of it is that God does work through the small and the insignificant. None of us can say that we cannot serve God. We often say, um, maybe we're too old or too young to be effective in ministry for, for, for the Lord. Um, I'm too old. I don't have the energy anymore. Leave it to the young ones. Or, oh, I'm too young. You know, I don't have experience. I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, I'll leave it to those guys who know what they're doing. Or Um, I don't have enough money or we don't have enough resources as a church to reach out to the people in need. Or, um, you know, so many excuses that we can come up with that we can't serve God and they usually do due to our limitations, but that's where God works. God works through the small, through the insignificant, Um, and that's how God chooses to work. He came as a servant, not as a king. He uses the weak to confound the strong. He honors the widow who gives the two coins that she has left, the little that she has above the rich man who gives much out of what he has to spare. None of us can say we have an excuse not to serve God. He has given all of us something that we can use for his glory. We've got all the least two small coins that we can give towards Jesus. Francis of Assisi came from a wealthy family. But it was only once he gave up his wealth and his riches and he shared everything that he actually um, started to become effective and started getting followers. And he has a movement. He started a movement that is going today, hundreds of years ago. Um, Mother Teresa, um, she could have sat back and done things from a position of power. Um, There's many, um, I'm sure, nuns and And many people in the world who work in the Christian world who sat back and done things from afar, but instead she got down and she went to the poorest people and she dealt face to face with lepers and with, with the poorest people in this world in India. And that's why she became so effective, I believe. When we're generous with the little we have, that speaks much louder than when we give out of the much that we have. If we turn the other cheek, if we go the extra mile, Then we will be like mustard, and we will see God's kingdom grow in ways that we don't expect, and Christianity will spread like a weed. All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I just thank you that um, again you are in control of your kingdom, that you work in ways that we don't expect, and Lord, I just would like to come now and just say, whatever we have. Take and use it for you, Lord. Um, however small, however insignificant we are, we Lord, we give ourselves to you and ask that you use us uh, for the extension of your kingdom. Amen.